Welcome to episode 45 of Peak Curiosity. I am your host, Abigail. Today I have Tim Siegert, a convert from Protestantism to Catholicism. I asked him about my biggest hangups, you know, Mary being sinless, papal infallibility, confession, you know, the average Catholic stuff. Tim was super cool. I really enjoyed this chat and I expect that you will too. I don't think I'll convert anytime soon, but I will probably read the books that he recommends. And I want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. There are at least 30 other podcasts that are so much better than this one that you should probably be spending your time on instead, but here you are. I hope you enjoy the show. Why, hello. I can hear you great. Awesome. How are you, Abigail? I'm doing just dandy. How are you? Doing well, thanks. What do you do for your day job? Um, well, so I'm a, I'm what's called a seminarian. So I am currently in school full time to be a Catholic priest. So that's oh. a, that's a, like uh, right now I'm doing an internship at St. Mark's, the church you emailed. I and see. So I work basically like kind of a, yeah, like an intern at St. Mark's for this year. I'm actually almost done. So ah, awesome. What is required to be a priest? Well, it differs kind of, there's a lot of different orders and I don't know how deep you want to get into that but um, for me it's seven years of education it's two years of philosophy four years of theology and then that internship year um, so you get potential I mean and you know you have a couple other types of things like counseling and and very administration and various other things as well sure um, but uh, yeah that's that's kind of the gist of it. it it's not always seven years some guys are five some guys are ten depending on how old they are and previous life experience and all that gotcha yeah well i should start by saying the object of this podcast for me is going to be understanding why you found catholicism so much more compelling than protestantism that you number one converted and number two are working putting in seven years to become a priest so um Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have no interest in changing minds. Sure, yeah, no, I get it. It's not apologetics, it's discussion. Yeah. I get that completely. There's a there's a time and a place for each, right? So, yes, for sure. Yeah, I totally get it. Um, But how about we just get a little bit of an idea of who you are as a human? I'm sure you're more than just a Catholic. So <laughs> what are what are some other things about you, some hobbies, things like that? Yeah, um... Well, I was, I wasn't born in Idaho, but I, I moved to Idaho when I was five. So, um, and that was in 1995 to Boise. So that was kind of before, a little bit before the boom happened. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've seen Boise kind of do its thing, change radically really. And then I don't know, as far as hobbies, I like to, I like music. So I, uh, I play classical guitar, but I I mean, I should just say guitar, you know, I, I like a lot of different kinds of styles and stuff and. Um, so music's a big thing. Um, I love to read. Lo- absolutely love to read all kinds of different stuff. Um, definitely like um, literature in general, and, uh, history, and um, I like popular science. I'm not a scientist, but I like popular science, <laughs> uh, philosophy, and theology, things like that. So I like a lot. Yeah. Does that? I don't know. Does that help you at all? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, 
this is not where I anticipated going in the least. Uh, but I have you read the Brothers Karamazov? Dostoevsky is literally, if not my favorite author, one of my top three. I think one of the most like I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've read it. I did, and the reason I'm asking is because I didn't quite understand it. Everyone has said this is such a deep and awesome, wonderful book, and I read it and thought, I think I really missed something. So, Sure. No, I mean, authors hit people in different ways, right? So not everything clicks with everyone. So I, I get that, because there's big-time authors that I've read that I'm like, I don't get the big deal, right? But for me, um, one like there's many things you could pull out of that book that are really amazing, but... Um, the, the Grand Inquisitor is one of the chapters in there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you remember this chapter, but it's basically this long, it's like a, the whole chapter is a story. Is this and, when Ivan was going off? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and and it's one of the best arguments against the existence of God ever written in the history of ever. Um, what's so fascinating is that Dostoevsky was an Orthodox Christian or Eastern Orthodox, right? So, so we have a believer um, writing one of the most convincing arguments for atheism ever written in history. Um, and people just found that totally amazing and flabbergasting that he could so get into his character that um, he presents like more convincing arguments for atheism than most atheists can. Um, and yet, and then also the fact that he remains a Christian himself. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. So, hmm. That's one thing that struck me. I don't know. There's many others, but okay. I don't know if that helps at all. I, I will have to do another episode on this. I have a guy that I grew up with as a youth pastor who it's his favorite book. So I think I'll yeah. plan on doing an episode of just being like, please explain this to me like I'm 10. That's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's there's lots of fans out there. So I'm sure you'd get a, a good following. That. I'm sure. That's, that's a pretty good idea. Cool. <clears throat> Okie dokie. Um, Catholicism. I mean, what in a nutshell, and then we can move deeper from there. What specifically makes Catholicism so compelling that you converted? I think what I'll just do, if it's okay, is I'll kind of just tell you the process, how like yeah. historically in my life, how that kind of progressed. Um, so I was um, raised in, I, I have very, very devout, wonderful parents. Um, who gave me faith in Christ at a very early age. Faith um, has been a gift to me, and it's something that, um, I've, yeah, it was just given to me at a very young age. Um, church in general, attending church was was natural to me. Um, didn't always like it, you know, as mm -hmm. as a kid, but but it was it was it was natural, right? It, it didn't feel weird. Um, my mom told me that I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was three. Which, uh, I believe, I believe it. I think I was sincere. I don't see why I wouldn't be. Three-year-olds are pretty sincere, you know. I was baptized by my own choice when I was five at a Foursquare church, which is, um, are you familiar with Foursquare? I am not. Okay, it's it's Protestant, and it's, um, uh, I would say, on the charismatic side of things, kind of, um, sort of, not Pentecostal. Well, uh, yeah, some would call it Pentecostal, I think, you know. So, okay. So, heavy Holy Spirit vibes. <laughs> um, and then I grew up in that and various other churches around the Boise area. And um, it was, I was actually growing up uh, incredibly unimpressed with most Catholics. I knew I was, I was um, most of the Catholics I met knew nothing about their faith. Didn't very live very uh, 
good lifestyles that demonstrated they they believed in Christ. Um, a lot of them, when you when I confronted them or talked to them or whatever, um, they just really couldn't give any kind of answer. It seemed at all about anything, let <laughs> mm-hmm. alone God. And I was just I don't know the first like I'd say eighteen to twenty years of my life I was Catholicism was not an option. It was just totally unimpressive to me. I would attended you say? Cold Valley... Go would ahead. you say it was mostly because they? the Catholics you knew didn't even know how to defend it themselves or were there other reasons? That was one of the reasons. Um, a lot of them were what I'd call cultural Catholics. So like they would say, I'm fill in the blank ethnicity and therefore I'm Catholic. Right. So I'm Mexican, I'm Polish, I'm Italian, I'm Irish. You know, you could, there's any number of nationalities that are predominantly Catholic. And so therefore I go to mass and it's like, what about faith in Christ? And it's like a blank stare. Right. (laughs) Um, so it's like, okay, I don't know why I'd ever, I'd ever do that, right? That just totally unconvincing. And I attended Cold Valley Christian School, um, which is in Meridian. Um, and uh, I got a really good education, you know, just familiarity with the Bible there and stuff. So I was very blessed to do that. And it was, things started to kind of change. Catholicism became a live option when I went into college at Boise State. Um, kind of unknowingly, um, I got a lot of Catholic friends, um, starting around my sophomore, junior year, maybe, uh, of college. I just started to have actually some Catholic friends, and they were not only Catholic, they were Catholic, and they were they were not the type of Catholics I was um, discussing before, where they just didn't know anything about anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they actually lo- I could tell they loved Christ, and they they just had re- they had really good. Um, they were just fun people to be around, and I don't know, they're just 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 engaging people in general. And um, and that includes, I I dated a girl who was Catholic, right? And she was formerly Protestant. And so that really intrigued me because I had never heard of that. I had heard of Catholics becoming Protestant, but I'd never heard of Protestants becoming Catholic, right? And so I was like, that's really intriguing. Um, And I was dating her, right? So we got to talking and I said, well, you know, um, I, we should, you know, we obviously have our differences, but we should talk about them and kind of get those out in the open and see if that's going to be a hindrance to the relationship or not. And she said, yeah, totally agree. And we, you know, we talked about it a lot. And um, I said, why don't you give me, um, why don't you just give me the best Catholic literature you have that, that you know of like the very best stuff and um, I'll read it and I'll tell you why it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like very prepared. I was, I was, I was like just thinking I'd just roll over it. Right. It would just be totally lame like, like a lot of the stuff I'd already encountered. So she said, sure. And she gave, she started giving me books and uh, a lot of them were books about the Bible, which I didn't expect. Um, but also philosophy and history and these, these other things. And we can go deeper into any one of those topics if you want, but I started reading these, these books and I was shocked by how compelling they were. I, I thought they would just be like really easy. And the more I read, the more I realized I was running into something much bigger than I thought I was going to run into. It was, I, I was, I was shocked by the, the, the depth of thought within the books. And so, you know, I naturally went on the internet, did a lot of internet research, which is always a sketchy idea, but um, did that. This is back in like 2010. So this is still back in the days when, you know, people could just edit, edit Wikipedia. Right. But <laughs> um, yeah. So just doing a lot of reading online on chat forums, um, um, books, uh, YouTube videos, and I started to read 
a lot that led me into um, what we call the church fathers, which are the, the, the Christians of the first centuries, basically, you know, the first five or six or even seven centuries after Christ. I thought what I would find would be, well, I guess I'll just put it this way. I was just remarkably, I was just, I, I was flabbergasted by how Catholic a lot of these Christians sounded. They were using a lot of Catholic terminology. They were using a lot of, they were talking about bishops. They were talking about the Eucharist. They were talking about Mary. They were talking about, and these are Christians just centuries after Christ or even a century after Christ. Um, and so that was really shocking to me as well. And so um, I finally hit this point where, and I, after all this reading, I, um, I had still not yet been to a, to a Catholic mass. I, I'd never gone to a Catholic church. Um, I finally decided to kind of work up the nerve to go to a Catholic church, which is St. Paul's at um, Boise State. I went there and, and I encountered this, I, I guess one of the ideas I read really, really sparked my imagination that I'd never heard before from anyone was that Catholics believe that when Christ was at the Last Supper and he took the bread and the wine and he said, this is my body over the bread and he said, this is my blood over the wine, that they actually, not only symbolically, but actually turned into his body and blood. Right. That's what Catholics believe. And so that was a really interesting idea to me. And I said, if that's true and if Catholics keep communion in their churches all the time, um, I should be able to like sense that somehow. And so I went over to St. Paul's when I was by myself because I was super embarrassed and um, sat in the back, even though there was no one there, which is weird if you think about it. And I just prayed for a little bit and it was, it was a huge grace because the end of the gospel of Matthew came into my mind, which is, and I will be with you always, even into the end of the age. And that really convicted me. It really convicted me. And um, it, it, I would say at that point, I, was, it, I, I, I reached this point where I realized I, to not be Catholic would be to deny um, my own intellectual pursuit, uh, what I thought to be true. And so it was a matter of entering what they call the rite of Christian initiation for adults, going through about nine months of classes. And then I entered the Catholic church 2012, Easter of 2012. So the, yeah, it's a lot. Interesting. <laughs> a lot. Huh? So well, we, you can take that any number of directions. I'm yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, so the Eucharist, the, this is my body. This is my blood. Right. So in John, when that comes up and people kind of leave because they're like, uh, we're not really interested in this cannibalism thing you're throwing out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the totally. disciples. Not, not cool with it. Yeah. And then the disciples go, hey, Jesus, would you mind clarifying this? Because the people are a little freaked out. And he kind of goes, well, it just is a hard thing. You can just accept it or not. Right, right. Uh, paraphrase mine. And... Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was good, though. <laughs> but, I mean, at the same time, it could also be metaphorical in that also in John, there are, you know, be born again, which is clearly a metaphor because um, Nicodemus goes, what do you mean? Enter my mother's womb again? And other things like I am the true vine. I mean, we don't really mm -hmm. look mm -hmm. at Jesus as a grape vine so right, right. um yep thoughts yeah totally uh these are great thoughts and uh, you could spend hours on any one of them right because this gets into 
biblical hermeneutics. How does one read the Bible? How does one know when it's reading the Bible correctly, right? And that's a big deal. It's no small thing to do that. Um, I think one thing I could do is address each of those verses individually, but it, what I'm not going to do that. What I am going to say is that there are clearly multiple ways of reading each of these passages, right? That's obvious. You've just stated one other than the one I presented earlier. What I did instead is I went back and looked at what the earliest Christians thought. So we have, we have documents from the, from the, from just after the new Testament, right? We have the Didache, we have St. Justin Martyr, we have Irenaeus of Lyon, we have Ignatius of Antioch. We have all these Christian writers who knew the apostles personally, right? They, they were like literally, two steps removed from Christ himself. Um, and so we have to think that they had pretty close contact with what Christ actually taught and what, what the apostles actually taught. And so keeping that in mind in the promise that Christ would not let his church, not let the gates of hell prevail against his church. I think what we can do if we, if we look at those texts, we can see how early Christians interpreted them and we see that they interpret them in a way that is, to, in my mind, very Catholic. So that is, for example, Justin Martyr, first, cent, you know, first century after Christ. He says, no one who hasn't been, if you haven't been baptized, you shouldn't receive communion. Uh, we don't um, treat this lightly because it, he calls it the flesh of Christ. And the reason that early Christians were accused of cannibalism is because people um, thought that they were, they, by you know snippets they were overhearing, Romans and other people like that, they, they thought that Christians were eating people, right? And that claim makes a lot more sense if, if the language Christians were using was very, um, like, I guess, Catholic. Like, basically, we are consuming the body of Christ. We are drinking the blood of Christ. So you can see how the, this allegation of cannibalism, you could see how it could come about from, from Romans outside of Christianity um, and why people wanted to kill Christians right, for that reason. So anyway, does, I mean, does that help at all? Would you rather I win a scriptural exodesis? I don't know. Um, sure. Why not? Is there a fast version? Yeah. So I would say for John six in particular, there are, uh, there are times where he compared, he says, I'm like this, I'm like that. I'm the door, I'm the vine. Right. And all those times, um, he doesn't ever, he says, I'm the light of the world. Right. He, um, that John 6 is the unique, is the one place where he, well, I should say it this way. Christ is never afraid to correct his disciples when he means something symbolically and they interpret it literally and they get it wrong. Right. So like he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Right. Yeah. They're, and like, they're like, Oh shoot. We forgot sandwiches. Right. Right. And they're like, Oh, it's, it's about bread, you know? And it's like, no dummies. Right. He's like, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. He's not afraid to correct them when they, when they, um, when they, they, they think the opposite. And yet here we find him doubling down time and time again, right? Time and time again. Um, and he's doing it in a way, it's, it's interesting. Um, you look at Moses in the Old Testament, right? And, and he talks about this in, in the Bread of Life discourse. He talks about the bread from heaven, right? And he says, you know, Moses, Moses and, you know, God, you know, God, my father, basically provided you with bread from heaven. It's it's it would be strange for Christ to basically do this lesser miracle than the Old Testament when he's always doing greater miracles than in the Old Testament. He's always fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And so it would be strange for this to be the one time where Christ doesn't supersede what 
what comes before him, what what it what, what Christians would argue is leading up to him. So, hmm. does that help at all? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. So, if for you this came down to the Eucharist, why specifically Catholicism over Orthodoxy? Sure. Yeah, that's another good question. Um, actually, it's it's interesting you mention that because Orthodoxy is. Catholics and Orthodox are talking a lot these days on YouTube and stuff. I don't are know. Are they going to get that. back together? Yeah. Well, I mean, it'd be great. It'd be <laughs> wonderful. Um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because the church moves in hundreds of years, right? But um, yeah. So Orthodoxy. I will say this: although the Eucharist was the the clinchpin for me becoming Catholic, I actually came to believe in all of the Catholic dogmas and doctrines one by one. It was not like. I just accepted the Eucharist and then everything else fell into place. I actually struggled a lot with many other things before that. So like the idea of venial sins and mortal sins, right? That's a, that's one that, that I can list a lot. Um, the, the Marian dogmas, right? That was, that was a huge hurdle for me. That was a huge hurdle for me, the Marian dogma, uh, purgatory, papal infallibility, apostolic succession. I mean, there's so many, uh, even justification and sanctification. There's all these different ways, all these things I had to wrestle with, before before I got to the Eucharist, actually. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I had accepted things like papal infallibility before I'd accepted the Eucharist. And so, you know, the only... I'm pretty darn sure the only um, Christian group that holds papal infallibility is Catholicism. So it's kind of what makes it uh, Catholic, in a sense. Not totally, but in, in a very strong way. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what... Is the venial sins versus mortal sins? Yeah. So Catholics believe, I, I, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, I'll just put it this way. Catholics believe there are different kinds of sins. And they give, in the letter, first letter of John, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase it. He says, you know, there are a lot of kinds of sins, and there are sins that kill the soul, and there are sins that don't. And if, if there's a sin that doesn't kill the soul, you can pray for that person, right? And so um, a mortal sin is a sin that's so serious that it... Um, removes what's called sanctifying grace from your soul. So we believe that when you're baptized, uh, when you accept Christ into your heart, that you receive literally, actually, the Holy Spirit in you. Um, like you, you, are, you have God inside of you, not in some symbolic sense, but really. And so um, if you commit a mortal sin, that's a sin serious, serious enough that God cannot in any way be a part of it. And so that, that would be... Um, uh, for example, murder is like a you know a really classic one. Um, okay. There's other there's many others, but there's not an official list anywhere either. But but they're 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 commonly known among Catholics. And so anyway, and so those sins would prevent one from actually receiving Holy Communion until the person has gone to confession first. And so God's always willing to forgive those sins. You just have to have the humility and willingness to do that mm. before you go to communion again. Um, and a venial sin would not be serious enough to break that, to break that relationship. Sure. So it, am I following that if I murdered somebody and then died before confession, I would be not going to heaven? So first of all, the Catholic church has never, it said there's, it has like 10,000 plus canonized saints. But it has no one, it's never said anyone specifically is in hell, right? Which is really interesting. 
I'm not saying the Catholic Church doesn't believe in hell or that it doesn't believe that there aren't people in hell. But what I am saying is that the Catholic Church has never declared that sure. at any point, in which is really fascinating. Um, and but, probably wise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they have. They have said, no, there's these 10,000 people are, are in heaven. So that's interesting as well. But um, so there's also this idea of contrition, right? So it, it, let's say you kill someone and you're immediately sorry about it. And you say, man, that was the worst thing I've ever done. And I am going to, the next chance I get, I'm going to go to confession, right? Uh, that, was, that was just horrible. And so you go, right? And on the way driving there or whatever, you get hit by a car and you die, right? So that's very different than someone who um, kills someone is totally remorseless, I guess is the right word. Um, you know, happy they did it. That was the right thing. You know, that guy had to be taken out or whatever, you know, that is, so that person would be in serious danger, right? The person who, who has what we call perfect contrition um, and is, is, has full intention of, of repenting. God has mercy, right? And so we can we can have hope for those people, right? It's not we're not bound by things that that are simply impossible. And God, although Catholics believe in the sacraments and we believe in the power of the sacraments, we don't believe that God is bound by the sacraments. He's not He's not restricted by them. He can do what He wants, but He's given us this ordinary path, this very visible ordinary path of um, being with Him in heaven. You're going to have to tell me a little bit about confession. I'm somewhat familiar with the concept, but is the the main priest in this particular church, do you call them churches? Yeah, or okay. parishes. Pa Parish. Churches or parishes, okay. Either one. That's, Either that one. Sounds yep. right. Um, mm -hmm. Is it just the priest within that parish that um, listens to confession? Yeah, I think a confession is amazing, first of all. Um, it was like when I entered the Catholic Church, I did uh, a confession for 20 years worth of sins. It, it was a lot of sins. It was a lot of sins. How long uh, did it take? It took me uh, a couple hours. And it's amazingly freeing. Holy smokes. It is just, it is the most cleansing experience you could possibly imagine. Because the whole idea is that we get, um, when we hold secrets or we, or we sin or whatever, is that if people, we, ha we have these, this lie that we tell ourselves that if people knew who I really was, they would not like me or they would hate me or they would think I'm rotten or whatever. And what's amazing is that this completely dispels that lie because you, you say exactly what you did. And then Christ himself says, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven and I still love you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so and it's through another human being. That's what's so amazing about it is we have we have this incredible ability, at least I do, um, to rationalize and to lie to myself about what I've done wrong. And when you say it out loud, it just sounds so, so different than when you you keep it in your head. It's, Very true. It's, you're like, oh, I did that. I can't. Oh, it's brutal, you know. Um, and so it's psychologically freeing um, in that way, uh, too. But it, I mean, it also, it actually forgives sins. It's, it's, it's amazing. And so, um, yeah, a priest is the one who does that. The, the priest stands in for Christ um, and he forgives our sins when, when, when we go to him repentantly. And um, 
it's it's incredibly restorative. I I, I don't know. I've I've done it probably hundreds of times in my life at this point, and absolutely grateful for the ability to go, go to confession. I have two questions. Yeah. Is there a system within the confession kind of like in AA where one of the steps is once you acknowledge the damage you've done, you should, as long as it won't create more damage, go and make amends with the people who are involved? Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, it's really cool you brought up AA. I love AA. I love the 12 steps. They're completely compatible with Catholicism. Completely compatible. Mm -hmm. um, even though I don't think they were made by Catholics. I don't I don't think the founders were Catholics. But um, There's a lot of religious language. I don't know if they were explicit about which religion. Though. Yeah, I think they, they tried to purposely, I think, keep that out a little bit to make it uh, accessible, right? But anyway, I don't know the history of AA. I I, I just love it, though. Anyway, yes, there is something that you, you do. It's called a penance. And so um, that's historically evolved a lot. But what it looks like now is saying prayers for those that you've harmed or for yourself or for your family. Or the priest will assign you a, a – he'll say, this is a way in which I think you can be restorative in a way which with, you, can, um, you can heal, a way in which you can – you know, possibly, you know, remove damage spiritually that you've done. And so the, the way that usually looks now is prayers. Um, sometimes it's actions like, so maybe uh, let's say um, you've, a, a husband's done some, he's yelled at his wife or something. Well, maybe he should buy her flowers, right? That would be a good, good penance for that or something like that. Right. So, and you see all kinds of penances. Um, um, so yeah, to, to answer your question, it's called penance. Sure. Okay, this brings up more questions. Yeah, in, good. In priest schooling, do you have to take any psychology or therapy classes? Yeah, you do. You do. So, and and it's important to distinguish. We we do um, get classes about that, but confession is a different experience than therapy, although they're related, certainly, and like there's some crossover. There, a priest is not a psychologist, and a psychologist is not a priest. Uh, what the priest has the ability to do for is forgive sin and that's spiritual damage done to a person. And, and that may also psychologically heal someone. In sure. fact, I think it will, but you know, whether it's like super obvious in the moment is, is you know, debatable, but, and then psychologist, you know, no one, I don't know of any psychologist that claims to be forgiving sins. That would be unusual because only God can forgive sins. Right. So, yeah. So anyway, that's, it's, they're related, but different. Okay. Yeah. So I have quite a lot of distrust for large organizations. This goes for governments. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Big business. Very much I start to get side-eyed when things start getting too much power. Sure. So personally, like I totally see the virtue of confession and it totally makes sense there have been things where it's like holding on to this thing and then as soon as i say it out loud to a friend or my husband it's like oh it's not even a thing anymore once you get it out right. but at the same yeah, time sure. i'm like do i want the same guy knowing all of my secrets and everyone else's secrets in the church yeah 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 it seems a little it. scary i get it yeah that's i think a pretty natural human fear right is like is this right is this you know power is this kind of power healthy etc cetera, etc cetera. 
one thing that helps to know is that the church reserves the absolute harshest penalties for any priest who were to to break that seal of confession. I haven't heard of it happening that often, which is kind of amazing. Um, so, the, yeah, the, it, the priest is instantly excommunicated if you were to break, break that seal. Priests have gone to jail many, many times. Some have been killed rather than give up what they've heard in confession. Um, one of the most interesting, uh, I think Alfred Hitchcock's best movie is I Confess. Is It was made in the 50s. I think it's his best movie. Now, I'm not even saying that because I'm I'm trying to be a Catholic priest. I, I just think it's the best movie. <laughs> and it, the whole movie is about a priest who is framed for a murder that he knows who actually killed the person and he cannot say. Oh, or wow. even allude to the fact that this person went to confession with him. Right. So pe- the priests aren't allowed to tell people that another person went to confession with them. Mm. They can't even say that. Right. They have to be very coy. Um, so they're, you know, obviously humans are humans. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some priest at some point in history has, has probably broken that. But one, the church has reserved the absolute harshest penalties for those priests. And um, two, I, I get your concern and I understand it, but I think the biblical evidence points to Christ instituting this. And so it, it, it becomes less a matter of what we're comfortable with, which Christ is not really about comfort, right? And so I think all Christians agree on that and more about what Christ commanded. And so that that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes on many things, but I, I, I would argue that here as well. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's fair. Will you give me, in a Catholic perspective, what the gospel is? Yeah. So and I, just as an aside, I love this question. I don't feel like I had to reject anything from my former life as a Protestant to become Catholic. I felt like I got more of what I already had. And so I can confidently say that things like Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. Uh, He came to save us for our sin, right? Uh, He died on the cross for us. He loves us, right? He's the incarnation of God. I can still say all these things that I could say before. That's, that's, I didn't feel like I had to drop any of that. That's what's so beautiful. Um, And that I, I so admire in my Protestant brothers and sisters. I would say that in addition to those things, that Christ instituted a church, a very particular visible church on earth, so that he could continue to minister to us through that church, that we could have tangible ways of knowing him on earth, outside of just feeling him in our hearts or um, reading about him in scripture, which I think we do experience him in those ways. But we can also interact with other human beings who are in some way Christ to us. And I mean, and I mean that in a very tangible, visible way, and the, and the way that the Catholic Church is structured with the hierarchy, with the, with the people, the way they're configured, the way that the church fits together. I think it's Christ's incarnation spread through time until the end of time. And so that's part of the gospel message as well. And, and Christ ministers to us, especially through the Holy Eucharist, in which he is present to us, body, blood, soul, and divinity, um, every day if we want it, and at least on Sundays, where we get to receive him just in a more intimate way than people 2,000 years ago who saw him on the street. So I think that's an incredible part of the gospel. I think that those who, who believe in Christ and are humble enough to accept him have great hope of going to heaven, right? And so, and I would say, you know, if they stick with him to the end, they will go to heaven. So how's that for the gospel? I don't know. Pretty good, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um. Does 
the Eucharist. Is that what you guys call it? Yeah, we call it a lot of things. The Eucharist is one. It just means Thanksgiving. Okay. That's what it means, yeah. Okay. Does it have to be specifically ordained by a priest to count? Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, Do you want me to get into that or... Um, no, I suppose, because I was just going to move on that I've really, I've thought about this a decent amount and thought just in my communion quite often at church thought, well, I suppose if this is what it is, this is what it is. And I'm going to accept that and take communion, assuming it is that. And, uh, it wasn't eye opening for me in any way. It seemed just like every other time I'd taken communion. So I I think about it about every time, just about every time, but I just don't quite know what to do with it. So do you think that, that had I, if I were baptized into the Catholic Church and took communion that way, that I would then notice something being different? Um, so a lot of good questions there. I'll try to get them. Um... There's actually like nested questions in there. Yes. One, if you've already been baptized in the Trinitarian formula, you have been baptized. You don't need to be rebaptized in the Catholic Church. I was not rebaptized when I entered the Catholic Church. That's really cool, I think. Um, it, it shows that there's um, a unity among all Christians, even if it's not always acknowledged. Um, so that's one aside. Two, yeah, so Catholics believe that the way we know it's the body of Christ is not through our senses necessarily, right? Some people have received amazing gifts that way, but the way we know it is because it's from this particular visible church. So we believe just as we believe that when God said, let there be light, there was light. God has the authority to speak things into existence like no one else has in the same way, Jesus, who is also God, has the ability to say, this is my body. It's a declarative statement that changes reality. And he passed that on to his apostles, who passed that on to bishops, et cetera, et cetera, right? People we'd now call bishops. Um, and the way you know it's the Eucharist is because it is in the line of those people who have been in that tradition, right? So um, some people, uh, I'm included in this, I'm very blessed, have received, I have, receive the grace of like feeling Christ in the Eucharist. Um, and I, I didn't ever receive that in any Protestant churches. I'm not saying that Christ is not present in Protestant churches. I'm not saying that at all, but there's something very unique to me about receiving Holy communion at in Catholic churches. And, and even I, I get a sense of when I walk into Catholic churches because communion is kept there 24 seven, I, I nearly always have some kind of sense of Christ's presence. And that's not something that everyone feels, you know, that's, that's kind of, um, that's particular to certain, I'm not saying I'm like special or anything, but like, I've just been gifted, I guess. I don't know. Like it's, it's really is a gift and not something earned. Um, that sounds really conceited. I'm sorry. I, it sounds amazing. It doesn't sound conceited. Um, so I guess I've been blessed to feel it. Um, some Catholics I know have never felt it, but they believe it nonetheless because they believe the word of Christ. It, sure. It's recorded in the gospel. 
Are you familiar with Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man? Yeah. Yeah. He converted to orthodoxy a few years ago, and he basically said what you just said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, orthodox and Catholics are, I mean, I would argue basically identical in their beliefs about about communion. They, I think they would beg to differ on that a little bit, but, but Catholics, I mean, it's, if it's not the same, it's extremely darn close. Yeah. So I suppose this question kind of goes back to my distrust for large organizations. Can you explain to me the Pope and number one, how is the next Pope chosen? And number two, how does the infallibility thing work? Because I assume it doesn't mean that he's a perfect human being. Yeah, so that's a classic one, right? So good, I'm glad, yeah. So, okay, popes. So, um, there is no word pope in the Bible. There's no word pope, um, I would argue, in the first few centuries, maybe up to the three or four hundreds um, of the church, which still is remarkably early that that people were Mm -hmm. using the title pope as early as the three or four hundreds. But that aside... um, um, there, you know, there's a very, um, the, the passage that Catholics are very often quoting, which is Matthew 16, right? You are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Um, and Catholics claim that's the, the claim for the papacy. Um, that's, that's heavily disputed, right? Obviously. Yes. Um, what, what I think is helpful there though, is the typological or like, yeah, typological, typological interpretation of what's going on there. That is what is Christ referring to? Where else do the keys appear in the Bible, right? And there's a fairly obscure passage in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 22. And um, in it, um, Isaiah is talking about the prime minister of Israel. And the prime minister at that time was a bad prime minister. And he says, you're going to go down and this other guy is going to come up. And whatever you loose, whatever he looses will be loosed and whatever he binds will be bound, right? almost exactly the same language that Christ uses in Matthew 16. The prime minister was the only one who could speak on behalf of the king, right? He had absolutely, that, that phrase, if, um, if I'm not mistaken, is basically like, as he says, it will be done, right? He has complete authority. And he's able to speak on behalf of the king, as, as no one else is. And so that, I think, plays into what Christ was doing there in Matthew 16. Additionally, another passage that, people do not frequently quote, including Catholics, is Luke, I want to say 20, uh, it's either 22 or 26. But basically, Jesus pulls Peter aside and says, look, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail so that you may encourage your brethren, right? Mm -hmm. When Christ prays for something, (laughs) it's it's achieved, right? We believe that as Christians. And so his faith, right, um, is, 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 we would say, rock solid, okay? So... All right, so that there's you know more we could talk about biblical stuff. I just wanted to throw a little bit out there to show that Catholics are not making the papacy up out of nothing, right? At, le- at the very least, right? They they, they have sure. some biblical understanding, right? But then we look at the names. We have all the names of the guys. So Peter went to Rome. He died. He died in Rome. He he ordained people before he died. We have their names: Linus, Cletus, uh, what is it? Linus, uh, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius. There's all these names that we have. Um, of these guys that filled this, this seat that I mean, not a literal seat, but like this office, basically like, just like people fill the presidency in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have this lineage till now. And the guy who sits there now is Francis. Um, and so 
um, we would argue that it would be kind of a little bit silly for Christ to say, um, I'm going to found this office, um, and I'm just going to give the benefits of this office to the one guy, and then everyone else after that um, is kind of like figured out, right? Like, I hope you can figure out this whole leadership thing, because Peter had all these really sweet advantages, um, but you don't, right? And so the, the benefits of this office continued on, and we see the bishop of Rome from a very early time, as early as Clement, who I, I believed was in the 90s AD, um, correcting other churches. He writes a letter to Corinth, which is not biblical, but was considered by some to be scripture in the early church. Uh, it was not included in the Bible, ultimately. Um, but he, we see the Bishop of Rome in a very early time taking a role as leader of the universal church, um, or at least, if not explicitly, implicitly by by being daring enough to kind of like, if you can imagine a pastor at one church calling out stuff and happening in another church, that's pretty bold, right? Definitely. Um, and so, so there's that. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of other things, right? Um, but papal infallibility, right? That it's basically the belief that it's not the belief that the Pope is sinless. That's clearly not true. If you look at history, there've been horrible popes, right? Horrible, horrible people. What it is, is the belief that the Holy Spirit has protected this office that we now call the Pope in a special way such that when speaking specifically from his office, so not as just his not speaking on his own personal behalf and speaking only on things that are in faith and morals, he is protected from error. So it's kind of a defensive measure in the same way that the entire church that Christ has founded is also protected from error. So that's, that's kind of the, on the technical side of things, but it, practically, how does this play out? It's interesting. It's only been invoked maybe two times ever that okay. where that one of the popes has said, I infallibly, or I solemnly declare using the office of Saints Peter and Paul by the authority given, you know, it's like these, this long, like legal sounding thing. And, They've used it to define a couple Marian dogmas, too, to speak of. Um, and it, it, it's not uh, the Pope. I should say one more clarification. The Pope is not like the president of the LDS Church who is able to receive new revelation. Right. Um, okay. um, the Pope cannot change anything written in scripture or tradition. He is merely like the referee of what's in bounds and out of bounds. So that's. That's people infallibility as best as I can explain it. Um, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a time in history where popes have contradicted each other on, on, on things of faith or morals. I think it, you'd think it'd be really easy because the church is really old, but it's even the places where people think it, it may have happened are very few and far between. And so to me, that's, that's miraculous. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd have to look into that to, to research that to really, you know, see what that's all about. But that's kind of my best explanation. Is this a myth or is it true that you guys pray to the saints? Is this um, a thing? So, yeah, it's a this is a great question. This is a really good question. So um, the word pray is used equivocally. So that, it means it has two different meanings. And, and Catholics have, are really sloppy with their language because they're just using everyday language when they do. So the official Catholic belief is that you only adore God 
You only worship God. God's the only one who receives that. Catholics, however, do also ask for those people in heaven to pray on their behalf. All right. And so they'd say, I pray to St. You know, whoever, John Paul II. I prayed to St. John Paul II. You might hear one Catholic say that to another. And what they mean is, I asked St. John Paul II to intercede on my behalf. It's a lot more words, right? And so if you're using that kind of language around Protestant, what it sounds like is, I worshiped John Paul II. But the Catholic Church categorically condemns worship of anything other than God. So that, that includes Mary. That includes all the saints. You cannot ask, you cannot worship anyone other than God. But you can ask those people in heaven, the saints, we believe, pray for you, just as you can ask the saints on earth mm -hmm. to pray for you. Is, is Jesus not enough of an intercessor? No, he, so his sacrifice is like eternal, once and all, once and for all, right? And it says that in Hebrews. His sacrifice is what enables us to be connected to those that have passed from this life. So it's, it's kind of the, he enables us to be, that's what even gives us the ability to ask for these people. It's like this cloud of witnesses, right? That St. Paul talks about in Hebrews. It's like, um, it's just in the same way that we, uh, we um, ask for, like it says in James, right? It says like a right, the prayers of the righteous man avails much, right? Um, sometimes we feel it's really helpful to go to another person, especially someone we regard as very advanced in the spiritual life. Pray for us, right? Um, I think a lot of Protestant Christians do that with their pastors, and I think rightfully so, right? And I, Catholics would just take it to the next next step and say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is Jesus is he who through uh, he who enables us to to ask even those who have died to this life to pray for us as well. Hmm. That's interesting. I suppose it's kind of if you imagine that heaven is outside of time. Mm -hmm. So asking someone to pray for me right now, mm -hmm. okay, I'm not wording this well, but it's making sense in my brain. So we'll go with that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Mary. Sure. That was the hardest thing for me. Sure. Honor. Okay. Yeah. I may be just hearing some myths and not accurate descriptions of what is believed, but this is my understanding that it is believed that Mary is sinless or was mm -hmm. sinless mm -hmm. and that she was always a virgin her yep. whole life. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so those, I, I have it. Anything yep. else? Uh, that she was assumed body and soul into heaven, right? So at the end of her earthly life, she was taken up in a special way, just as like Enoch and Elijah were up into heaven directly. Yeah, okay. Catholics believe that as well. Catholics also believe in the Immaculate Conception, which is the idea that a lot of people misunderstand what the Immaculate Conception is. They think it refers to Christ, but it actually refers to Mary and that she was conceived through normal human intercourse, but she was preserved from original sin. Oh. Um, yeah, okay. that's the Immaculate Conception. Yes. Not Jesus. Yeah, Jesus was also free of sin, but that's a, that's a different thing. So... Yeah, so, I mean, do you want... Uh... Let's do each of those pieces, because none of them make sense to me. Yeah, as I said, the hardest things for me to accept. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons that they're hard to accept for, I think, a lot of non-Catholic Christians... By the way, most Orthodox would agree with these as well. 
Um, they, they have an issue with some of the language involved, but they would affirm her sinlessness as well. And they would affirm her virginity or perpetual virginity as well. And they would also affirm that she was taken up into heaven, body and soul. So that's interesting that the only one they don't is the immaculate conception, but they, they just think it was different mechanics. Okay. Different way it happened. But it's fascinating that the, the two churches hold those, those things mostly in common. Um, and so, okay. So mother of God, right. Um, did, oh no, that's it. We didn't say that one. Um, perpetual virginity, right. Um, so it mentions, it mentions Jesus's brothers and sisters in scripture, right. Um, it mentions, yeah. So that's a big one, right. That's a big strike against it. Right. Yes. Uh, theoretically. Um, and um, I think what's um, one of the, so, okay. One of the ways that these, these, when we receive, see verses that we refer to Jesus's brothers and sisters, the word that is used there in the Greek, which I don't know off the top of my head is a word that is very um, flexible and um, it's very easily also interpreted as cousins. In fact, it's the same word that's used to refer to Abraham and Lot in the Old Testament, um, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, about how they were cousins. It, talk, it uses that word, but they weren't cousins. They were they were uh, they had a different relationship. I think uncle, uncle and nephew. nephew. Yeah. So so we see this word, and there's other places in the Bible where this word is used very very loosely, and so um, there's that right. And then so my reply to that as a Protestant would be, well, that's nice, but I mean, what's that's that's just an interpretation, and who's to say that's interpretation's right, right? Like that that's just that seems like a, a wiggling out of something, right? Um, on first glance. Um, well, let me ask you: did, did could the term also actually mean brothers? Yes, it yeah. could. Yep, certainly. So yeah, there's that. So we look to this is what I did. We look to what did the early Christians think? What did they think about the matter? And we see people like Saint Jerome very early Christian, one of the best scripture scholars of all time, scolding people in his letters mm -hmm. for thinking that, that Mary wasn't a virgin and giving these interpretations, right? Very early on in Christian tradition. And so we see these master interpreters. It seems like a way out, right? It really does with this cousins thing. But we see these master interpreters very early on saying it's clearly a cousins thing because for example, some of the guys are like, we knew the apostles and this is how they taught, right? This is their oral tradition. And so, and that's what's been passed down to us. And so we know that's right, right? And they just say that as a matter of fact. And, and in fact, I believe it was basically what all Christians believe up until the Protestant Reformation, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so you could double check me on that, please. But so there's that. That's perpetual virginity. And then why does it matter that was, she was a perpetual virgin, right? Who cares? So it's, I'd, I'd say it is um, proof of Christ's divinity because it's a clear intervention of God into human history. You know, we, we know how the normal course of things works, and we know that virginity does not beget children, right? And so it's, it's yet another proof of Christ's divine nature. Um, and I think a lot of Protestants would agree on that, right? So, Immaculate Conception, I don't know what, what's... What do you want me to speak on next? Uh, well, okay. Well, let's go into her perpetual virginity because I totally agree that the reason it mattered that she was a virgin is you had to say God did a thing. This is right. a miracle. But I don't, 
understand why that follows, why that needs to continue for the rest of her life. Right, right. Yeah, um, I think this gets also into the way Catholics interpret St. Joseph, which is really, it's actually um, getting a lot of attention recently because among Catholics, like inter-Catholic dialogue, because he's really getting this like new look these, these days. Um, but basically the idea is that who is St. Joseph to approach Mary when she is regarded as what we call the new Ark of the Covenant? She is the dwelling place of God among men, right? She is, she is received. We see in, um, we see in the old Testament that the Ark of the Covenant was inlaid with gold, which was a sign of purity. And so if that was, and we see people, we see, um, we see a guy that, that the Ark of the Covenant falls off the, the poles or whatever. And that guy touches it and dies. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa. So, so Catholics have always traditionally interpreted Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant, um, which is the new bearer of Christ, the new bearer of God. Right. And so if, if a man in the old Testament touches the Ark of the Covenant and dies, how much more so the bearer of God in the new Testament, the, the fulfillment of the, of the type, um, hmm. that's kind of the argument. Did God not create sex, though, for married oh, he people? he did. Yeah, no, he did. Absolutely. We totally affirm the goodness of sex. Totally, totally. Okay. Yep. It's great. <laughs> it's, it, God, God made it. It's wonderful, right? Yeah. Okay. It's one of the highest goods God gave mankind. Okay. Yep. Um. So, Immaculate Conception, which I just learned, I have understood this term incorrectly, means that Mary was... Um, preserved from sin yes preserved okay. from sin so she was what's what's interesting as i liked okay have you seen bill and ted's excellent adventure i have not oh okay it's a it's won't work then it's a comedy it's the least it's the least likely movie that you'd ever use to okay. make a theological point it's keanu reeves when he was like 18 years old in the late 80s and it's a surfer kind of like it's it's a it's a comedy it's very very ridiculous yeah. Okay. Um, but basically it's the one time travel movie where they realize they can use the plot holes of a time travel movie to, to get out of their problem. Okay. Right. It's like the only time travel movie I've ever seen where they're like, Oh, we could just do this. Cause we're in a, we, they don't say we're in a time travel movie, but like they basically like almost do kind of like jokingly. Right. And it's, it's really funny when they do it. It's very, very funny. And so why do I say that? Right. It's, so we believe that Christ, or Mary was saved by Christ completely. She was not saved uh, because of something that she did, right? So she is still saved by Christ. But she is very interestingly saved um, and uniquely saved by something that had not happened yet, so that, namely the cross. And the reason that this was done for her was she was also not, in addition to being the new Ark of the Covenant, she was also the new Eve, right? So Eve was the one who, uh, we, you know, was the first one to lead humankind into, all, into, into death and sin and all that, right? And Adam followed. So Mary being the new Eve is given this complete freedom, complete freedom from sin, just as Eve had. And she's given like a second try, basically, at the Garden of Eden, right? She, God comes to her and says, are you willing to bear my son? And we have to keep in mind that the punishment for a child out of wedlock in the Levitical law is death, right? And so he's basically saying, are you willing to die for this? 
right? She had to know that. She had to know that it's a very traditional culture. Are you, gonna, are you willing to die for God's will? And she said, let it be done unto me according to your word. So she got right what Eve got wrong. And she was able to make that decision with absolutely complete freedom. That she was not forced in any way because she had no sin, nothing holding her back from giving a complete yes or a complete no in that moment. All right. And in addition to that, that, that point, um, the, the, the word that the uh, angel Gabriel uses to the, to the um, Virgin Mary when he arrives to her um, is, um, once again, the Greek, which I don't speak. I'm learning Greek, but I don't know it yet. Double check me on this. But look at the words full of grace. It's, it's, um, it's, I want to say like some kind of present progressive or something like that, meaning one who is doing this, one who, who has this and is having this, right? It's that, like that ing that makes it progressive. Um, or this full of grace is a really unique phrase in the Bible. So she has this, it doesn't prove the immaculate conception, but it does show that she is, unique in the Bible and being the only one addressed this way. No one else in the Bible is addressed that way, except for Christ, who's called full of grace. But he's full of grace in a different way. So I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but um, is that? I I suppose. Um, what what finally made you believe this? Um, so these the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of Mary, were the two hard, hardest things for me to believe. And they're Catholic dogs. Right. So yes. they're at the core of the faith. And I basically got to the point where I thought that historically, biblically, all et cetera, et cetera. I thought that the Catholics had pretty much nailed every single one. And I had disagreed with a good number of them beforehand. And I, I was I was about to be received into the church. And one of the things you have to be say to be received into the Catholic Church is uh, something like I believe and profess all the things that the Catholic Church teaches to be true. Basically saying, to be a good Catholic, you have to accept it wholesale. You place it above yourself. All right. You say, my reason has led me this far. It has told me that the Catholic Church is true on all the things that I can see. And it's true in the areas where I was not true previously. And so, therefore, my reasoning was, why wouldn't it be true in the areas I don't yet understand? If it's, if it's hit a thousand so far maybe it's going to continue to hit a thousand and that's a move of faith, right? I wouldn't argue that's a, that's a move of pure reason right there. Sure. But, um, as I've investigated these dogmas, there's, I, I found them to be more and more convincing. And I, when I became Catholic, I was very wary of praying the rosary. I was very wary of asking Mary to pray for me. Very wary of it. Like I was always listening during the mass, like, when are they going to say Mary and like try to put her in there and like, force it in where it shouldn't belong and i noticed they did remarkably little i mean like they don't i don't think they force it anywhere it doesn't belong but like these references to mary are are appropriate in the mass christ is usually referenced like numerous numerous times and maybe there's one or two references to mary in any given mass sure Um, and so yeah that that ultimately is kind of what what did it for me and there are there are good books about this stuff ironically written by former protestants now the best books are by former protestants on this stuff um, so, yeah. yeah, I suppose. I mean, when you fully understand the opposite view, it really helps you articulate your own view. Right. Yeah, yeah. The contrast helps a lot. So. so what would it take to prove to you that 
Catholicism is not the way to go? Yeah, good question. So if Christ had not risen from the dead, obviously that faith would be false. Um, if God didn't exist, obviously that's like a no-brainer. Um, if you could show me philosophically or, or somehow that God didn't exist. If you were to show me a place where the Catholic Church had changed its teaching um, over history, um, I think I would have to renounce my Catholic faith. Like, like the papal infallibility would be a big one too. Like if you could show that um, the Pope had contradicted an earlier Pope on a matter of faith and morals while speaking from the chair of Peter. <sighs> yeah. If they could like, you know, if they found, if, if they found the body of Mary, that would also be, that would prove the Catholic faith sure. false. Um, what else? Uh, there are a number of things that could prove it false. It's very falsifiable. Yeah. I suppose you it would be unreliable at this point in time to say this is Mary's body. You could be like, well, it could really be, be hard. anyone's. Yeah. It'd be really hard. Yeah. That one yeah. would be hard. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's theoretically possible, right? Um so mm -hmm. Yeah, if you could prove the apostles were liars, um if you could prove that the people just after the apostles if you could if you could show me that there were um people Prior to the Protestant, if you if you could show me like people in the early centuries of the church who spoke like Protestants do, I would I would be open to that. I would I would I guess I'd become Protestant again. Um, I just don't think I I honestly don't think they do. I think they sound very Catholic or even you know maybe Orthodox or something. But sure, I don't think they sound Protestant. What do you think Protestants do get right? Oh man, a lot, a, a substantial amount. Um, I think the, in my experience, um, Protestants are very good at sharing their faith. I think they're very good at professing faith in Christ. I think they're very zealous a lot of the times that this focus on scripture, memorization of scripture, reading of scripture, the zeal behind that's awesome. The missionary work that Protestants have done, um, the willingness to, to go out, you know, and, and not be like self-centered and, and like Catholics struggle with them. I've known in my time, I've been Catholic for like nearly 10 years. Catholics aren't nearly as welcoming in their churches as Protestants are in general. These are generalizations, of course. Um, yeah, there's a good number of things that I think the Catholic church, good preaching, good preaching. Catholic priests are not necessarily good preachers. They're mm -hmm. not, there's no necessary overlap there. Some Catholic priests are great preachers. Don't get me wrong, but, but, if you're a Protestant pastor and you're not a good preacher, you just get fired. Yeah, that's um, true. Uh, if you're if you're a bad Catholic preacher, and you're it's you're a priest or ordained forever. You don't ever cease to be a priest. It's like being married. It's like that's mm. it. It's done. Like you can't undo that, right? And so, if a Catholic priest is a bad preacher, all you can do is be like, "Hey, man, you should get better at your preaching." <laughs> so yeah, preaching is a big one, and um, often music. The there's some. A lot of Catholic churches, you ask like Catholics, there's a lot of Catholic churches that have just terrible music, just awful music. Um, so uh, once again, that's another place where I think Protestants, you know, there's some Protestant churches that have bad music too, but um, because I think the focus is more on the music and the preaching, Protestants tend to have better music and preaching. Um, it's sure. not like super surprising, right? So, yeah. So would you say the main focus of a, a mass is more of the communion? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly. all centered around the communion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and there are yeah, it's liturgy. So 
it's it's uh, ordered worship of God. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get tired of it being so structured? No, I don't. Uh, the the thing is, is like the the structure uh, lends itself to you can fall into like ritualism, right? Which some Catholics do. Uh, but if you do it right and you do it prayerfully, it gets richer every time. The things that we do a lot, we master, right? And so when we master things, we we have so much freedom within them, right? It's like it's like you see like great musicians who um, they don't think about the scales they're playing. They just play what they think in their mind. Right. But they are playing scales. They just, they don't think about it. Right. I think uh, like someone who's been a mass for 50 years, um, it's just ingrained in them. You know, like I've seen people nearly dead that (laughs) like they're literally dying, literally dying that the priest comes to their house and says, okay, I'm going to give you communion. And they go, you know, they start doing the sign of the cross because it's so burned into their brain, right? Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, additionally, you can go to Mass in different languages and know what's going on because it's exactly the same. So you can go anywhere in the world. Catholic means universal, right? So there's that. And then additionally, you're supposed to pray outside of Mass. So if you like the more structured, free-form, laying on of hands, charismatic gifts type stuff, there's room for that. You just do it outside of Mass. And, I mean, there's a huge renewal in the Catholic Church with that kind of thing going on right now. So um, when it's not restricted to ritual worship in the Catholic Church. Yeah. What I really appreciate about Catholics is usually how beautiful the buildings are. I think Mm -hmm. that's where Protestants really, I mean, and this is coming from a person who goes to church in a coffee shop because that's just what they can afford. But yeah. I just love how you walk in and everything is pointing to something that means something. Mm, yeah. It's not well, just decoration. And when you look around the room, you're just being reminded of Bible stories and doctrine. I super love that. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I totally agree. I understand where you're coming from. Like at the end of the day, like you, you do what you can afford, right? So, so I, I've attended those type of churches in my life. I've been to Catholic churches that are not pretty, right? So there is that to be said, but also there, the, the Catholic church is, everything's, the whole, the whole thing's tangible. It's on, it's supposed to appeal to your senses. Um, they call it smells and bells. It's supposed to hit you in every kind of possible way that it can. It's incarnational, we call it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. Is there anything else that you would like to mention? I think I'm mostly out of questions. Um, I'm, well, I'm just, I'm always happy. I'm, I'm really happy that you emailed St. Mark's. I mean, I thought that was really humble of you just to reach out and just like ask, like, where are you coming from? Where are you guys coming from? Um, I, I love sharing about my faith. I'm just super, I love people who are willing to listen. <laughs> a lot of people aren't, right? As you know, a lot of people don't like to talk about faith. Um, super, super, it's, it's just so joyful. I've been so incredibly blessed in my life to receive what I've received to, to, to be given a faith in Christ, to be given a, um, I, I believe, you know, being led into the Catholic church. So thankful. I'm so incredibly thankful. And I'm, I'm, I I hope that everyone receives the kind of joy that I've received. Yeah. I I think it's, it's, it's a gift, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess what I would say. I will move on to 
after that very nice and somber moment into my very lighthearted final questions. I ask okay. these of every guest, and right. you can take as much time as you'd like. There's really no time limit here. Um, do you like The Office or Parks and Rec? Um, I would say The Office. I mean, that's just an all. It gets. I think it's getting funnier the, the, the older it gets. It actually. I agree. You can't see it on TV anymore. Yes. And so it's like, wow, how did they get away with this? Yeah. You know, um, Parks and Rec has its moments for sure. So, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I, I finished either one, but I mean, just the office, I think it's all time comedy gold. So, yeah. Do you believe that Genesis chapters one through 11 is actual history or mythology slash legend? I think it is both. Okay. <laughs> that would take a while to unpack. I think it is the uh, extremely true. I, I believe in evolution. Um, Catholics are not, they don't have to believe in evolution. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe in sure. evolution like I believe in God. Evolution could be false tomorrow. Um, God's not going to be false tomorrow. So I'll just pose the question that people are always asking me. Well, then... What about Adam and Eve and sin entering the world through Adam and Eve? Right. So Genesis 1 can be true. Um, and and you, know, you get into like monogenesis versus poly. Is it polygenesis, right? Um, it's like theories of how human beings entered the world or okay. became whatever, right? And um, science has shown us that there's, there is one like uh, i don't know i'm not a scientist as i said i'm not a scientist but like we have one origin point it's it's out of africa right it's roughly two hundred thousand years ago right it's it, we don't have anything against that so i mean the science maybe will show otherwise in which case right we'd have to review our interpretation of scripture right because i believe that god is true and he reveals himself in truth through nature through science also through scripture and so the two will never contradict if we are interpreting them both correctly. And so, but yeah, the science seems to be showing one source. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to know because science um, is not quote a science. It seems to always be changing Yep, and new things thing. are being learned all the time. Right. It, like Aristotle's physics was used until Newton came along. That was like convinced. Everyone's convinced that was right. You know, they, a lot of people thought, yeah. Was, you know, you, you, get, you know, all the things that people thought were so convincing for so long, evolution could be one of those things. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you believe that there are aliens? <laughs> oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, um, I think there's this thing. I've read about this. I've thought about this. Um, I don't. I don't. But I... I, I Either way, it's weird, right? Because, because either we're totally alone or we're not alone. And either one's super weird. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, there's, I want to say it's called the Fermi Paradox. Okay. Um, double check me on that. But basically, the idea is that given the number, how large the universe is, the number of solar systems, the number of all, you know, planets, habitable planets, etc., Basically, and how old the universe is, like roughly 16, 17 billion years, like the fact that one has not reached us by now would indicate there were probably none out there, I think is the argument. And, I, you know, once again, I probably butchered it a little bit, but that's the general 
gist of it. If there were aliens, I'd be like, whoa, that's amazing. I would totally change my mind in a heartbeat, right? I'm not like diehard. Uh, I think I would like for there to be, but I, I don't... S- I mean, I don't see any proof. we're about to get some documents released from the Pentagon, so maybe some things will become more clear shortly. Yeah, I but mean, it'd know. be really amazing if there were. I'd be totally, I'd be totally stoked. You know, well, maybe you'd be terrified. I don't know, but yeah, I have listened to a lot of Joe Rogan, and um, according to some of the alien people he's had on. There are some really, really old caves in Australia with drawings that have aliens, like exactly what you think of an alien. Like the green guys with yeah. black eyes? Yeah, not green necessarily, oh. but but big, huge heads, big, huge black right. eyes. Same exact thing that we think of aliens today, which is very interesting. Very interesting. Sure. Yeah, no, <laughs> this stuff's great. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, my favorite is, I mean, I am... Um, I went into so I don't have you ever been to Powell's bookstore in Portland, Oregon? I have been there. One of the biggest bookstores. Yes, right? I was very overwhelmed. I kind of yeah, gave awesome. up. It was too much. There is this section in it called the metaphysics section, which is not metaphysics at all in the least. But it's basically all weird conspiracy theories Ooh. about everything, right? That's like the weird section, basically. And my favorite was like the the Vatican is in on the UFOs, right? They're planning, they know everything, and all the priests know. And I was like, dang. When do I get this class? Like this, yeah. I can't wait to be on the inside of this. This is going to be fantastic. So I'll let you know once they tell me the, the inside scoop. Yes, please. Yes, yeah. please. About um, when does this happen? Uh, well, hopefully I'll be ordained a priest in two years. Okay, cool. That's when you can expect aliens, if, if there are. <laughs> <laughs> Who or what inspires you to be your best self? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the cop-out answer, right? I don't know. I, am I allowed to use the cop-out answer, or, or am I restricted? I would prefer not, but you yeah, do it. what you must. Yeah. Um, oh, man, that's a really good question. So, I think, well, I'll just go with my parents, because they're remarkably um, sincere, devout people who really have given me a good life and they've, they have made belief easier for me than I think it is a lot of people because I see that there's good in the world and I see that, um, life in Christ is worth living. And they, they gave that to me. They've been very consistent in their lives and their lives haven't been easy in a lot of ways, but they've been just so rock solid in that. And so, um, I would be remiss not to, to pick them. I think. Well, uh, this has been just a jolly good time. Good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you for spending your evening with me. And I definitely learned a lot. And um, I guess I should ask one last thing. Okay. What were some of those books that you remember that your girlfriend told you to read? Yeah. So I, I might struggle. It's It's been 10 years. Um, but... Yeah, so there's one of the Marion one that, that's very good, I think is very accessible, very easy to read by Scott Hahn. And it's called Hail Holy Queen. That's a big, that's a great one. There's another one. There's this, uh, these are biblical authors. I'm going to give you uh, biblical scholars. Okay. Um, there's another author called Brant, B R A N T, Petrie, 
P-I-T-R-E. He has um, several books that are, are called like Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, um, Jesus and the Roots of, and the Jewish Roots of, so he shows a lot of Old Testament, New Testament connections, okay. I think. That sounds um, fun. And then one more, uh, I just had it. Oh, Church Fathers Know Best by, or Fathers Know Best or something like this, um, by Jimmy Aiken, A-K-I-N. And it's basically um, quotations of early Christian leaders um, in regards to what they thought about various dogmas. Awesome. I will probably pick up a couple of those. Yeah, I'd be, yeah. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Sure. So, if you, I mean, are there any books you'd recommend to me? I mean, what it, what what should I read? <laughs> um, I am not incredibly versed in apologetics and definitely not super deep into why specifically Protestantism. I No, I'm just talking in general. In general books that should be read? Yeah. Um, well, I will always recommend 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah, I read that. Okay. Wonderful. So you've already done that one. Yeah. Um, 1984? Yeah, that's okay. a great one. I imagine with your love of books and literature, there's nothing that I've read that you haven't. Except, this just came to me, this is a new book, um, an, an autobiography called In Order to Live. Okay. By Yeonmi Park. It's Y-E-O-N-M-I Park. Uh, she's a North Korean defector who wow. is now a human, human rights activist. And she's made it, uh, I was just reading on her Instagram last week. She said, it's not a matter of if I'll be assassinated by the Kims, it's when. Yikes. So it is heavy, but it is really changing my life so i would definitely recommend that okay yeah that sounds yeah north korea bad yeah very very interesting yeah so thank you yeah okay well anyway that wraps us up awesome well thank you yep thank you um, it was good to meet you yeah good to meet you and um i'm following your podcast so awesome if i need a part two i'll let you know okay yeah yeah whatever just whatever so okay sounds good Great. Thank you. Yep. See ya. Bye.